0: I'm recording this in the fall of 2017 while almost everyone in Sweden is cowering in fear from the Twitter storm raging just outside their screens in cyberspace. Sweden has been more blessed or cursed, depending on your point of view, by the Me Too phenomenon than any other country on Earth. If you don't believe me, please look in the description below this episode on Patreon. There's a link to Patreon in the description below this episode, regardless what platform you're listening on. Please take the time, I urge you because I fear my description will not do it justice. There you will see a Google Trends map of the entire world, mapping out country by country the Google statistic for the search term "Me Too." Countries range in color from gray to different shades of blue according to how much the search term is used. Sweden is Yves Klein Blue. When I'm first shown this picture, Sweden has the value 100, and in a distant second place looms the Netherlands with only 38 points. A drab blue so boring it's hard to look at. Two days later Sweden is still at a 100 and now Norway has taken second place with a score of only 17. Norway is approaching grey while we are still the color of a very healthy smurf. Proving Sweden is uniquely affected by the Me Too phenomenon. It is astounding and a bit embarrassing. In Denmark, they just laugh at us, Swedes. They call what is going on here svenskerier, Swedishness. If it sounds a bit like craziness, it's supposed to. That's the point. So how come the most feminist country in the world at the same time have the most rapes and sexual harassment? After all, we have a feminist government, according to itself, the first feminist government ever we have a feminist foreign policy, and we gave women the vote before any other country on earth. So how can a country that has included gender perspective in school, from kindergarten to university and beyond, be the most misogynistic? The usual argument for this is, the fact that Sweden is the most progressive country in the world might make us a bit more open to talk about things like this, and that we, because of this, have a higher reported rate than most other countries who naturally are equally bad or most probably worse. And sure, that could explain some of the phenomenon. But over 650 Swedish singers signed a Me Too petition. Over 450 actresses. When the actresses gathered for a large manifestation at the city-run theater in Stockholm, members of the royal family were there. As the actresses read confessions of harassment and abuse they had been subjected to in their workplace, it was televised and held in English for the whole world to see. I really hope you watched it. Over 4,500 lawyers have their own petition, which sounds like quite a lot, but I checked the numbers and apparently Saku, an organization for lawyers, says there are 35,000 people working in the sector today and half of them are female. That's 17,500 and 4,500 of that is just about 25.7%. So maybe we should ask why 74.3% of female lawyers didn't sign the petition Are roughly 75% of female lawyers pro-rape and sexual harassment? And now more than 4,000 journalists have signed their own petition. At public service, that's what we Swedes call our state-owned television and radio channels. The journalist clubs in all branches are calling to workshops where their petition will be read every half hour. Come, read, think and battle sexism and different forms of harassment with us. Individuals of all genders are welcome. We that arrange this are the club chairmen of SVT, UR and SR. That's the different branches of TV, educational programming and radio. And then it goes on. And we would very much want to form a task force to continue to work on this question. Since the 14th of November, the unions are involved promising to battle sexual harassment business sector by business sector. Apparently 60% of the young female workers in the industrial sector have been sexually harassed. 60%. At least according to the Metalworkers Union chairperson, Marie Nilsson, an astoundingly high figure, especially to happen on a female boss's watch, one could note. On the 16th of November, the state prosecutor officially recognized the importance of the Me Too campaign for the justice system itself, thus suspending habeas corpus. Which, among other things, would guarantee you the right to know what you are accused of and who your accuser is, a fundamental principle in most Western justice system, but rather new to Sweden, I'm afraid. Though it has been made into Swedish law by the European Convention of Human Rights. It was made into law 1994 colon 1219. Now it's null and void. And sure, there are a few voices that are concerned that this might be creating an informer society. A society where anyone can accuse anyone else of being a rapist or a deviant, where lynch justice rules the land. Reactionaries who don't understand that the moment is finally here, the perfectly equal and just society is just around the corner. All it needs is this little final push. We're doing it to get rid of sexual predators, after all, and if that costs a few wrongful accusations, a few people who get fired to never find work again, a few more innocent lives ruined in the process, then so be it. Utopia will have been worth it. But it still doesn't answer the question why Sweden, the most feminist country in the world, is at the same time the country most plagued by hatred against women. We have been applying gender science in schools, modulating female behavior to be more like boys, to break the norms, and boys to be, well, less like boys for 30 years now. And sure, the boys' grades are lower than ever, they even suck at math and physics now, but the girls are fucking awesome, so it's not like we haven't sacrificed for feminism. We have gender-certified the military, the police department, medicine, don't ask me how, but apparently biology finally came around to the Swedish way of looking at it. And why is it first and foremost women in media and entertainment and law? Powerful women with high education, part of our elites, that seem to have the worst problems. These people, after all, belong to the most privileged group of people that ever lived. And why now? Sweden has, after all, had a real rape epidemic for a few years now, not talked about, not demonstrated against, no hashtags or task forces or group hugs. For decades, women in the suburbs have been complaining of moral police roaming the streets to make sure they cover up and behave like proper women. When a woman in a wheelchair was raped by migrants in a toilet stall in Gotland and the locals started protesting for justice, the media, the entertainment industry and the justice system called them a lynch mob and racist, and maybe they were. But what in that case is the difference? I think that it is precisely because of this that we're in our current situation. But I will continue after the talk with Jan, so please continue to listen after our conversation, and I will tell you more about the situation in Sweden. Now, Jan McVarish, enjoy. So, uh, we're at uh, at Stockholm. It's the 18th of November, 2017, according to the Gregorian calendar, and I'm sitting with Jan uh, McVarish. Yes, and uh, you're really an author, and you've written a book on neuroparenting, and I Mm. haven't really read it, so could you just... Mm. Please tell me briefly what's, yes. what it was about.
1: Well, I'm a sociologist who's looked at interpersonal relationships, intimacy, and particularly uh, parenting and parenting culture. So the book uh, was an exploration of how claims about babies' brains have entered into policy in the UK and in the US as well, actually. Um, so the idea, the argument is being increasingly made in policy that we now know how children ought to be raised on the basis of n- new science about the brain. Uh, so the kind of truths emerging from neuroscience, which kind of present us with an absolute uh, uh, uncontestable version of what parenting ought to be like. Um, and but it's so- not
0: like they have a coherent system. They just have random facts.
1: They are yes, because it 's not really something that 's put forward by scientists themselves it 's an appropriation of science, so what 's been called scientism, um, which is being used by advocacy groups, by particular NGOs, um, by people who would like to receive state funding for implementing particular programs, in particular this idea of early intervention, which is that social welfare or social um, interventions or programs of social support needs to start very, very early in life, preferably pre um, Pre-birth, so possibly during pregnancy, so that mothers need to be informed and provided with support to nurture the fetus in particular ways, but also uh, in order to create functioning infant brains.
0: That sounds like some sort of horrible dystopian Aldous Huxley type future. And Sweden today,
1: <laughs> yes. Well, it's um, it, 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 there's lots of people have made parallels with eugenics, which I know Swedes really liked, uh, but. Um, uh, but it's slightly different. It, it is rather like eugenics in the sense that there's a very strong prevention um, agenda to the whole thing. But I think it's much less coherent than eugenics. Um, eugenics was really, in the UK and elsewhere in the US, it was really a, a consensus view of um, of the way human beings were made and how society could be improved. Um, although the UK didn't go as far as other places, or the US or um, Germany or Sweden, in terms of actually implementing policies on the basis of eugenic thinking. Um, But what we have now with uh, what I've called neuroparenting, which is the idea that we have these new truths about how family life ought to be lived, um, is that there's much less direct authoritarian um, intervention to sort of weed out people who are unfit. But there are uh, very strong prescriptions as to what parents ought to do. And what this tends to translate into is the idea that mothers in particular need to be extremely attentive to their infants at all times, including in utero. Hmm. So, uh, Sounds
0: like they're trying to make everyone into a Jewish mother. But <laughs> <Well,
1: laughs> well, I think people, even Jewish mothers, probably worry less than probably contemporary British or American mothers um, about every aspect of their child's development. Um, but yes, there's an element of that the, this kind of cultivation of very, very close, attentive um, behavior in, on the part of mothers. But also, fathers as well are now included in this kind of discourse. Um, and what's talked about is the need for parental attunement. So for the parent to, to cultivate an attached relationship with the baby, which is said to be necessary for brain development, um, the parent needs to be extremely attuned to the baby's emotional states. And if they're not, if they're out of step with those and fail to respond quickly enough, then, then it's not just that the child will be unhappy in the moment, it's that there will be future damage caused to the, um, the child's brain, which will inhibit their development uh, in the longer term.
0: This is some new form of biological moralism then? yes. Could you say that? <laughs> yes. Yes, because I only read a review about it <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, online before I got here. Mm-hmm. And I came to Kulturhuset because you were just in a Me Too debate. Mm-hmm. And uh, I missed it, unfortunately, because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I was doing another under- mm-hmm. interview. But how come you're invited to a debate about the Me Too phenomenon mm-hmm. when you're writing about neuroparenting?
1: parenting Well, it, I've, I've spoken over the years and written uh, about uh Interpersonal relationships and intimacy. My PhD was looking at single women and uh, the kind of growing phenomenon of people living by themselves. So I've always been really interested in what are the barriers to us actually achieving uh, satisfactory or happy relationships with one another, including raising children. Um, so I'm, I've always been interested in that, and that's something that I've spoken about and written about over the years. And uh, this debate, I think. It, it, it does relate to the, the parenting question because there is a, a, it's part of a, a broader culture which is continually demanding mediation within very, very intimate relationships. I mean, there's nothing more intimate than a mother's relationship with a newborn baby. Yes. But the demand is made that we cannot that – that's a dangerous space. And that that space needs to be eliminated, the risks need to be eliminated from it by the intervention of experts or science. And the equivalent in Me Too, which actually came up in the debate today, is the demand that we need to train children how to uh, handle relationships. They need consent training. We need better sex education. And the argument was put forward by some people that we need to teach young people how to uh, police their own boundaries. And I think that's something very similar. To what's going on in the neuro-parenting discussion, which is this idea that spontaneous human relationships, which are not guided and formed by uh, expert opinion of what is right, what is the correct way to do things, are just too risky to be left by themselves. So I think there's a, a whole load of parallels across there.
0: So let's say that <clears throat> um, the liberation of sex mm. started with Freud. And mm-hmm. before Freud, both men and women were sexually repressed and oppressed, mm-hmm. right? And then you start a liberalization, and this opens up a gray area where the church or the family doesn't decide your sexuality Mm -hmm. anymore. But that also puts a lot of responsibility on the individuals, Mm -hmm. right? So both man and woman has to take responsibility for the act of courtship, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Individual responsibility, Mm -hmm. not according to societal norms, but find their own way. Yes. And at the same time, they're being reared in a way that uh, takes away their own responsibility. Mm -hmm. And... uh, makes them believe that they need mediation or help from the state or the mother in every Mm -hmm. instance. Mm -hmm. Does this in some way sum up your argument?
1: Well, I think there is, yes. I think there's something there which is the idea of total freedom is a very frightening state to be in, and it can feel like a huge amount of pressure, especially when there is um, a sort of vacating of the space of of moral or social norms, um, especially ones that would have been religious so one of the things that came up in the debate today which is really interesting and a point I wanted to try to pursue which is this to me there's great parallels between religious fundamentalism which says that men and women are just they just cannot be together it's just too risky Um, or that sex is something that God gives to us and we must uh, yeah. you know, act on it according to God's will and restrain ourselves. The feminist version of that, I would say, and the one that's become very prevalent is the idea that sex is women's gift and it's something that they give to men. And they don't really want it in the first place, but they have it. <laughs> yeah. And that men want it all the time and that somehow women are these kind of non-sexual creatures who possess sex and that they must... Um, it's a terrible responsibility for them to try to continually sort of rebuff Men, And that's what comes through really strongly in, in this debate and in previous debates, which is a real kind of f- deep fear of heterosexuality, I think.
0: A, a fear of heterosexuality? Yes,
1: yes. I think there's a real fear of... Because,
0: um... okay, so let's, let's mm. start from the beginning. What mm. happened in this debate? Because you've just flown in from England,
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right,
0: to participate in this. Yeah. And so uh, what was it like for you? Please tell me.
1: Well, I'd heard that Sweden had gone a lot further with the Me Too discussion than maybe even Britain. I'm not quite sure that's true, actually. I think in Britain it's taken a very particular form where there's been a kind of political crisis that's formed around Me Too. And obviously everybody's been interested in the Hollywood version of Me Too. Um, And I'm sure in each national context it takes a very particular form. What came up in in the debate today, though, which is something which is fairly universal, which is that the claims of people who see themselves as victims are very difficult to challenge in public discourse. And so I was on a panel with Sissy Wallins, who's...
0: Sissy Wallin, yeah. Sissy
1: Wallin, who's very well known here as far as I understand it. and was She uh, certainly is. Okay. I, I, had done, <laughs> I didn't know. so um, But I'd read a bit about her beforehand, who spoke as a survivor, as she called herself, of, um, of a, you know, what sounds a dreadful thing if it happened, of, of being drugged and raped, and it then failing to have police action which you know is a is a big problem and would need to be investigated um but she also said that she didn't like the fact that the me too movement had been denigrated as being a witch hunt because she said i am a witch and i am on the hunt now i suggested that's the complete misunderstanding of what a witch hunt is which is what witch hunts were was that it was other people defining who the witches were yes. <laughs> and the, the witches that were hunted so i think there's a there's an idea of, the, of this sort of well a legitimization of vengeance for this idea that there's somehow this war going on and she actually spoke about um a war on women yes and i think it's i think this is such a curious worldview because if if we were if men are at war with women then how can we sit in a room with them and have a debate which we just did so the thing is a huge amount of of hyperbole exaggeration and disingenuousness in the way this uh discussion is is played out and um but this is
0: uh, this is how you perceived the situation when you came in this is you yeah. and the panel after half an hour or
1: well this was the yeah the initial comments that were made and then uh Marta whose surname you'll have to fill in for me, who's from Norway, who has a problem. She, uh, is, she thinks that uh, the Me Too campaign is a high point of radical feminism, she said, or revolutionary feminism. She thinks it's absolutely fantastic, but has reservations about the naming of men um, without there being some kind of legal process and so she, unlike uh, sissy she does think that there's a there's a need for some kind of restraint in that respect but nevertheless she thinks it's um, something very positive but she also raised concerns about it there being a, an element of public cleansing going on which was really interesting because she spoke before me and cleansing was exactly the word that i was going to use and so um i what comes through very strongly, I think, from the other speakers, including the man who spoke, whose name was Jonathan Rollins, who's an American comedian but lives in Sweden, he spoke about um, his own awakening, that's the word he used, and that, uh, that all men have had the experience of going too far on a first date, um, and that he was then awoken to his own behaviour, I'm not quite sure by what... Um, which led him to then try to act differently so that he wasn't part of what he called rape culture. And he then at the end spoke about the, trying to raise his son so that he did not also contribute to rape culture. And it's an, and that we need sex education to help us police the boundaries and to understand that no means no. Um, and so what comes through from the panel is is this really very fundamentalist view of sexual relationships being this dreadful, toxic space where terrible things happen and people are destroyed. But it's spoken about in sort of light t- terms, because if it's really the case, there should be direct action now on the street and we shouldn't be sitting in a room together. Well, and it's you're very describing
0: odd. it very interestingly because I consider, I consider this to be part of the state religions, mm-hmm. you know, the secular state religion mm-hmm. that took Christianity's place after mm-hmm. they exterminated Christianity here. Mm -hmm. between the, well, let's just say 1945 and 1978 Mm. for some reason. And then, (sighs) uh, yeah, so they do really believe, and this has been government policy as well, throughout all levels of education, uh, from kindergarten to university, Mm. and in every government department. uh, It's uh, The gender science, because it's a science here in Sweden, it's Mm -hmm. not... Uh, gender studies, mm-hmm. as it is mm-hmm. in England, it's gender science. It's, it's in our army, mm-hmm. instructions for soldiers, police, mm-hmm. medica- medical care. Yeah.
1: And what's the belief here that's being, what's the primary well, belief? Well,
0: the basic belief is that, you know, there's no biological difference between men and women, but mm-hmm. uh, men are biologically inherently right. toxic mm-hmm. and women are biologically inherently good. Yeah. Uh, they are constantly uh, victims and the men are always the perpetrators. Mm-hmm. And this is, um, well, uh, basically state law now.
1: Well, I thought it was... Um, I See, I tried to counter what I knew was probably going to be the way the argument would go, which was with personal anecdotes. And I know that Sissy is there because of her personal anecdotes. And I weighed up, uh, should I also take that approach? Because what's happened since Harvey Weinstein and the last few last month or so is that I think every woman probably has reflected on things that they'd actually forgotten about and then thought, "Hmm, you know, how do I interpret that? And I came up just quite quickly with five things, five incidents since I was 17. Um, And I thought, I wonder if I can actually uh, uh, challenge me to by saying, you can interpret all of these things in a completely different way and the consequences of interpreting them differently is that you have to act differently and that you create a different version of womanhood and human relationships through that. So one of the examples I started with was that when I was 17, a friend of mine was raped and murdered. Now, the man who did that was arrested, (laughs) found, arrested, tried, served his time in prison. I think he may well be released now. Now, that to me is unequivocally a crime it was treated, with, treated uh, in the way that it ought to have been. But it tells us nothing, as far as I'm concerned, about masculinity. If I want to understand why he did that, there's no point in me trying to consider the attributes of all men
0: you're looking at your father or your brother or your <laughs> well, son. You aber- well,
1: this man is an aberration to social rules. He's not in, acting in accordance with social rules. No. Whereas the rape culture idea suggests that somehow he's acting in accordance with something that everybody just thinks is fine. Yeah. It's obviously not true. And we can all agree that rape and murder is a very, very bad thing. No, we cannot thing. all agree. You know, in Sweden now. <laughs> well, everybody did seem to agree that what happened to him was the right thing. Um, but then they're, they're moving to, to more... Uh, ambiguous. Uh, well, I'm just going to. I wanted to add something to the first one, which I'd forgotten about, which was that the fin- my final point about the first case, which was a very you know rape and murder, nothing more serious than that, dealt with by the law. Uh, but I also would want the man who was arrested to be presumed innocent, uh, and that he should only be convicted if there's evidence to do so. So I think there's something really important for us all to hopefully agree on and to uphold there um, that accusation is not enough. Um, the second example was one where <clears throat> I w- when I was about 21, a student in a park with two friends and we heard a whistle and we turned around and saw a man masturbating in the bushes. Um, and we thought, oh, <laughs> what do we do? Uh, and I said, why don't we chase him? And we chased him out of the park. And as we chased him, we realized that he was mentally handicapped, so which completely transformed the situation. And I, so my argument from that is that Me Too is useless in that scenario because Me Too would say, I froze. Uh, yes. I do nothing. I'm too terrified. What I'll do is I'll tweet about it afterwards. You're
0: incapable as an individual yeah. to take action.
1: Yeah. And actually, I was with two other women. If I was by myself, I might not, but I probably would still have shouted and sworn and probably chased. Um, not because I'm a superhero, but just because... That always seems to me that is an option. (laughs) You cannot start from, you have to make a judgment and maybe sometimes it's not safe to do that, but you're having to make a judgment very quickly in that scenario and there is no need to assume that the only option is passivity. Um, And when we realised that he was mentally handicapped, the responsibility was then on us to decide how we act, what we did next. Do we go to the police so that he doesn't do that to a little girl? because we are women, we're not children, you know, we can take that responsibility. Do we act so that he doesn't get beaten up by other men because they discover him doing that to a little girl? Do we report him to the police that his parents, I'm assuming he lived with, could get some help to try to restrain his behaviour because he needed to restrain his behaviour? And so my argument is that you know, when we always have scope for action, and sometimes we can decide to not act and do something later. But we have to assume that there, is, there are choices to be made in those scenarios and that when you act, you transform the meaning of the situation. So it's very evident by the end of it that we certainly weren't victims. We laughed about it with our male and female friends, but also were concerned. Ridiculing
0: what- the mentally handicapped.
1: <laughs> no, we laughed about the kind of scenario and then, but also we're concerned that this guy would what would happen to him? Because yes. he, he doesn't—he isn't positioned as the, the terrifying bogeyman male uh, exercising And at is. no
0: point you and your friends thought of just taking out your cellular phone, s- taking a snapshot well, of not in 1992, no. All
1: right. So you didn't a, have that option. No, but I think that is a bad option, actually. And I think that just, for, you know, I think you have that isn't really acting to me. That's sort of what you're doing, acquiring evidence. I, if I'd done that, I wouldn't have seen who he was it's only when we chased him we realized we saw we got closer to him and uh, he ran outran us out of the park and we didn't pursue him uh you know to then beat him up or anything but we realized in the way he was running and the way he looked that there was a problem yeah. with him with him um and so it just transforms the situation and when you act that's what happens um third example <laughs> when i moved to london this makes it sound like it was all hell and it really wasn't so i had to these these scenarios came back to me. Um, I worked as a carer. In order to live in London, I worked as a carer for a guy who was paraplegic. And I used to have to push his wheelchair. And uh, one night I was pushing him home and a guy ran up, I assume it's a guy, ran up behind me, grabbed my backside and then ran off. Um, and... I, it didn't bother me particularly. I, it made me shriek. But then the, the problem of the situation was not for me, but it was for the guy I was pushing because he was so humiliated by the fact that he could do nothing. And he was devastated by the idea that a, w- a young woman, much younger than him, would have to push him around in a wheelchair. Besides all the things I had to do in terms of personal care, which is already humiliating for him. But not only that, um, when something happened to me, he was just passive. And there was nothing he could do. And he, he, he felt dreadful. And so my job, as far as He's I... He's
0: part of the patriarchy, obviously. <laughs> well, as far
1: as I could see it, that the, my role was then to reassure him that it was not a problem for me and that actually he didn't need to be humiliated either. It was, it was okay. And actually, yeah. as I said on the panel, I, there was a slight thought, which people didn't like me saying this, that, oh God, I'm doing this really unglamorous job, <laughs> which involves doing all kinds of hideous personal care roles, Um, and pushing a very heavy man in a wheelchair along the uneven streets of London. But maybe at least my arse is still appealing when I'm doing it. (laughs) (laughs) And that was a tiny thought, but the the reaction on the panel was like, oh my God. (laughs) So Uh,
0: basically, uh, you uh, disarmed that situation, which could have turned into a lifelong trauma for you. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, do you know what I actually did? Is next By
0: taking thing, it as a compliment?
1: No, because that wasn't everything about it. As yeah. so I also, next time I pushed the wheelchair, I tied a jumper around my waist to oh cover right. up my backside. Which I think is a reasonable response to that. Because, you know, I was walking the same route and I just thought, well, I don't really want it to happen again.
0: And obviously so, people can't keep their hands off it. Because
1: it's not it's <laughs> so great. It's, it was so fantastic. But no, but it, it's never one thing. That's my point. It's it, one of many things. One thing is, yes, this guy was a... a a jerk who did that to somebody who was pushing a wheelchair, I mean, what an absolute shit to do that to somebody he could see I was pushing a wheelchair um, that's horrible uh it's pathetic uh but also it, I, there was a slight element of it being slightly flattering uh but then the other you know, the other context is that the man I was pushing found it really quite troubling um, so that's none of these scenarios can be simplified and the problem with the me too agenda is it just wants to simplify it all the time fourth example the same guy who i pushed in a wheelchair uh, then asked me to um this might suggest that i'm so desirable <laughs> these examples he then asked me he said he would pay me money if i took my top off um and uh yeah you know, difficult i'm living i'm living in this guy's home sort of two nights a week and having to do very personal things for him albeit he has only three functioning limbs i uh, know one functioning limb three that didn't work so you know not physically threatening in that sense but um it was awkward but then and i said no and then he asked again and i said no and you know, a few weeks later he asked again um and at some point I had no money and I actually considered it. And I thought, Christmas is coming up. <laughs> Maybe I could buy Christmas presents for my family. But of course, but I made the decision. Well, I say, of course, I could have decided to take the money and do it. But I didn't because I thought, well, that's that's going to cause a whole lot of trouble. It's not who I am. I wouldn't do that. And also it was it would be exploitative of him as much as it would be of me it was a kind of mutually exploitative de- degrading situation and i didn't really want to go and give presents to my parents which had been funded by a man <laughs> who yeah. gave me money for burying my tits so so uh, i didn't do it but we carried on i carried on doing the job and um had i reported him which me too would say i ought to do he would have lost his home because it was provided by a charity which employed me to care for him i would have probably lost my home because i was li- Provided with a flat somewhere else to care for him, and he would no longer have had carers to enable to him to enable him to do this independent living, which is what he was trying to do. There's no way I would have reported him to the, and I wasn't because I was a fri- frightened. It was because I just could weigh up all the really complicated consequences of his actions and my actions and because we were in a relationship of some sort there of a he wasn't my direct employer it was you know lots of kind of um complexities to it you have to take responsibility and so i think that and what me too says is that we take no responsibility because we're women we shouldn't have to we shouldn't have to tie a jumper around our backside we shouldn't have to uh take any responsibility for a man losing his home and losing his carers, uh, because it's just so wicked what these people have done. And I, and I wanted to introduce into the discussion the huge, the, all the other alternative interpretations and actions that are possible. And then the final example I gave, which was that um, uh, at about the same time, I'd not long moved to London, and uh, I was walking home one evening, and uh, I was surrounded by 15 girls who took my bag from me. They didn't say anything. They just said, give me your bag. But I think if they may not even have said that, they just took it, I think. And I just gave it to them. I just had to make a decision. Uh So Me Too would have nothing to say about that because they're girls. They were black girls. So they would have probably even less to say <laughs> yes. um unless they may try and say that these girls were somehow influenced by... Cox- economic mas- factors well, then, made them Well, no, they might, they might say that, but they might equally say that they're kind of taking on the norms of masculinity, which is what some people were arguing back then, which was in the late... When was that? Uh, yeah, probably early 90s as well. Um, and what I concluded was that, oh, God, that was really humiliating. Should I have fought back? But then I instinctively thought they could actually kick my head in and it could end up really serious because there were so many of them. Um, but I was also really pleased that I in my bag was nothing other than a, a book by Lenin and a book by Trotsky. <laughs> <laughs> Why <laughs> a, may I ask? It was about four pounds <laughs> and it was a secondhand briefcase. I was wearing a fur coat at the time, which I didn't wear again because I thought, well, maybe that's inviting trouble. It was for a thrift shop. <laughs> but in my pockets, I had my keys in one pocket and my purse in another. So actually the consequences, that's that's called being street smart.
0: Well, yes, but also it's kind of weird that you carry around only a book of Lenin (laughs) and one book of Trotsky in your handbag. (laughs) It's like you want to be robbed by the less fortunate so you can educate them about about the the evils of class society. I'm pretty
1: sure they discarded the bag and the contents very soon afterwards. But um, so I use those, I try to use those examples to not to sort of, uh, you know, share the anecdote sharing because I then also said, of course, you don't have to believe me. And of course, that's absolutely counter me, to me too, which is because I'm a woman, you must believe me. Yes. Why You're would a I, victim. I'm a victim. Why would I lie? Um, and of course, they didn't, they, these the people, they did believe me, but they didn't think I should say it. They sh- I shouldn't say these things because my interpretation is wrong. Yes. And actually, I may well be able to reinterpret what I said in the, along the lines of me too. But I don't think they should believe me. Why should they just take my word for this? I'm, I've no doubt that my memories are not accurate. And I've no doubt I've excluded. Loads of other examples that would not fit my, the narrative I chose to take. Um, so I think that all of those examples tell us nothing about men or masculinity, um, which is what Me Too would say they do. Um, the men, Most of the men, apart from the women, were breaking already agreed rules. Yes. You don't ask a young woman who's twenty years younger than you to to remove her jumper and pay her money. I mean, who thinks that's normal moral behaviour? Nobody thinks that's that's acceptable. Um, he didn't think he was acceptable, which is why he was really ashamed of what he did. Um, and uh, so they're already breaking rules that we've already established, and some of them are illegal, and some of them are not. They're just social. Codes. But according
0: to me, too, they're all illegal.
1: They sh- they should all be illegal. Yes, yes. and probably yeah. They should all be made illegal, possibly, um, but certainly they should all be acted upon in one way, which is to report to the world, to expose and report. Um, I don't think they necessarily think the police will get involved in all of these things unless they're extremely naive as to what the police have time to do. Um, but the other thing uh, that I was trying to challenge was this: the Me Too version, which is that uh, we're not victims, we're survivors. They say, well, we're victims, but also we're not victims. We're su- su- survivors. And I think in those scenarios, the only scenario where I was actually really under threat was with the 15 girls. That, because if I had taken a different course of action, I think I probably could have been quite seriously injured. But I don't think I survived that. It didn't happen.
0: <laughs> the no.
1: violence didn't happen. Um, so, but what they're saying, what Me Too says, is that we are brave Bec- and you should celebrate the fact that I'm speaking about something that happened to me. Um, and I th- my, I'm not a feminist, actually. And, but when I was, I would never have thought that feminism was about um, just being celebrated for something that happened to you. It was about having the freedom to exercise uh, your freedom to act in the world. And I think what the Me Too agenda does is to say to women, the world is not the place for you.
0: Yeah, you have no agency.
1: Public spa- uh, Well, public, spa- and public space is too risky for you. It's not changed enough yet. So, you know, really think twice. Um, and although what it's, it sounds like what they're saying is, you know, the public space needs to be transformed along the lines, actually, of the kind of restrictions that are already applied in workplaces and on college campuses. They want everywhere to, to be governed by those kinds of rules. Um,
0: I know, it's so strange. So because for strong- me, feminism was, you know, strong, independent, mm-hmm, mm-hmm self-sufficient
1: yeah yeah well what they would say now is that's all very well for you well not you me
0: yeah it's
1: all very well for me i'm just that kind of woman well i'm not, i i was not that just that kind of woman uh i made a decision and a book that was really influential to me in the um, when i was a student was a book by katie Royfe, the american writer called the morning after and she spotted uh, way back then that there was a real problem on, camp, on the university campuses in America with the reclaim the night marches and a, a kind of big, a huge increase in the idea of date rape <clears throat> and what she spotted was that compared to her mother 's generation of feminists, there was this new version of womanhood that was coming to the fore, which was this idea that we are just victims, that rape is everywhere, that as a woman you 're really yeah, you're more likely to be raped than find a husband this kind these kind of stats that came out um, from American feminism. Um, And that had a huge impact on me. And I really um, felt I thought I didn't like the way that feminism was going in the um, late 80s, 1990s. So on campus, the main activity of the Women's Committee was to hand out rape alarms on a very very safe university campus that's all they did really and then talk about tampons i think the rest of the time about not being biodegradable uh, it was utterly depressing <laughs> and not that i was particularly drawn towards feminist politics but they
0: are biodegradable they just don't have a long enough time span
1: it's not something i've ever said any time thinking about but obviously you have <laughs> um
0: <laughs> <I> have.
1: <laughs> but they um but i just I, it had no appeal as anything you know politically engaging um And uh, in fact, the critique of of what feminism had become was something I was much more interested in than than anything else. And since then, I've never said said that I am a feminist. Because to me... And The Morning
0: After, the title, it refers to how you feel the morning after you've had random sex.
1: Yes, so it's about the kind of reinterpretation of your experience once you experience a degree of regret. And with the feminist uh, uh, mantra of men are always in control... Uh, if you regret, if the woman regrets a sexual encounter, the only explanation for that feeling of regret is that she must have been forced to do the thing she did the night before. Uh, whereas, but
0: that's horrible.
1: Well, it's there. that's that is the idea at the moment, isn't it? That's that's the idea behind. That means you can do
0: whatever you want, and you can always blame someone else for your actions.
1: Well, there was a, some really interesting examples that came up from the audience today. Um, eventually, so initially, you know, the audience was much more against me and on the side of me too but actually as as it progressed you could feel that the space opened up for there to be some kind of um but maybe men were empowered in the audience to speak (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, empowerment was the word of the session but the um so one man said well i um a woman finished a relationship with me and she then accused me of all kinds of terrible behavior and i had to go through hell to prove my innocence uh, and another young, um, young man spoke towards the end, which was a fantastic contribution, which really, again, raised lots of other questions, where he said that when he was 12, he was accused by an aunt of touching his cousin, sexually touching his cousin, um, which he didn't do. But it, it created a huge schism in the family. And actually, I think if that was in the UK, there would have been social services and possibly police involvement. In America, there would be even more serious consequences of some horrendous um, there would have happening happening. to be a
0: wedding, at least in Alabama.
1: No, there would be, he would be in prison. Yes. So Lenora Scanese writes about this, in, who writes uh, blogs as free-range parenting. Would a child I mean, go so, to prison for that in yes. the United States? So that one of the uh, I saw her speak recently at the Battle of Ideas in London, and one of the examples she gave was exactly this scenario, where a boy, it wasn't a false accusation, he did actually touch his sister's genitals, but I think he was 11 at the time, and the sister was 7 or 8. Uh, and he was he is still in his now in his 20s. He's still subject to uh, he, he he had to go to a young offenders uh, institution. He's on the sex offenders register. Um, and even though he's reconciled with his sister, he's not allowed to be in the presence of any child. Um, and he's been put back into prison consistently because he's he has breached certain conditions, like, for example, going to dinner. Uh, his family, and then a young, a, a teenager turns up who who actually turns out to be under seventeen, where well, nobody knew that they were. So the, th- this is where you we end up. We we can end up in these kinds of places, and actually we are already there. So, it, it, me too is not the cause of this. Yeah, you know, no. me too is part of a much it's longer a process. It's a symptom, but it also does accelerate things, I think. And um, but the the, the other thing that's come through and it's come through throughout the, the discussion today is. This idea that you can't say that. So, my version, my interpretation of my events was really said to be illegitimate. So, somebody said, uh, so, um, someone on the panel, someone, or on someone... The, someone on the panel. So, Sissy, really? Sissy said that, um, uh, well, she basically said I was a witch, I think, <laughs> that, you know, that my views are really completely unacceptable and that people, women like me, were depressing because we, um, we don't believe and we, we say that you should just man up or just kind of handle yourself differently because that's what I can do. And that really isn't what I'm saying. I'm not saying that all women can always be, take control of situations, but I'm saying that you have to aspire to that and actually give yourself some options. Um, and then Marta said that, um, uh, well, that's because I'm from the UK uh, and like she knows people in Poland and Poland and the UK are way behind Sweden. And we're kind of these backwards <laughs> backwaters where these kind of ridiculous views like mine are still uh, able to be heard air, air, to be aired and heard. But in Sweden, that's not the case. So the implication being that I just shouldn't say what I'm, I'm saying. That's why
0: we flew you in.
1: Yeah. Um, and so it's uh, you can see the the closing down uh, and uh, you know with a real fervour of. Um, of any possibility of having a rational discussion, and you know, and to try to say, well, actually I do agree that sexual violence is a problem, but what the hell do we do about it? Which things can we do something about and which things, if we try to involve the law in solving them, we actually make things intolerable because we just take away the freedom that women fought for. Um, so it's a, it's a difficult discussion to have, I think. And it's about, it, but the good thing about me too has not come from me too. It's the fact that there has been a relatively, um, it's been possible to challenge it in the UK, I think. Um, although people in Sweden have said that there's been, been no critical voices so far. Whereas actually in the UK, there have been quite a few, usually older women, who have said, look, really, it's not a big deal to have your knee touched. And sometimes it's quite nice. Uh, but when it, the line between when it's nice and when it's not nice, is really one to be negotiated between the two people. It's not something that can be decided in advance. Two, yes. two grown-ups, yeah. Two grown-ups. And that this idea, this theme of infantilization has, has occurred throughout the whole discussion. Um, but there's a, there's a sort of tendency to cast those older women as knowing nothing, as if they know nothing about the, the, today's world or today's women, and that they're just, they were either, so the view is either that those women were... I've got a sort of false consciousness <laughs> that they were just unable to spot oppression when they experienced it or that they were complicit and that they used the fact of um, their kind of sexual power to do down other women and to turn a blind eye to what was happening to I think to other the women. term you're
0: looking for is patriarchal pleaser, PP what? for short.
1: Right. Well, I've not heard that one, but that's probably what they would say. But it's... Um, but it is a, so it's, this also turns into a kind of generation war. So old, all old men are awful abusers who have no idea of what they're doing. They're just bumbling around, touching women at random. Um, and all old women, are these idiots who couldn't even see what was happening when it was in plain sight. And the the rejection of experience, of life experience of women who've experienced all kinds of stuff and actually had to deal with it and learnt lessons about how you deal with it, is just completely ignored. And the idea, the continual refrain is, we shouldn't have to deal with this. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, Which is a very strange idea because it's, it's a sort of utopian idea that somehow you can eliminate all bad stuff from the world. Which I find really strange. I don't well, really Well, not only
0: bad stuff, also good stuff. Sissi Valin was uh, just a week ago, she mm. was on uh, Channel 4 in Sweden mm. uh, in a morning show, kind of like The View in the States. Mm-hmm. And she said, uh, I have realized now at uh, becoming older that uh, sometimes men will say nice things to girls in order yeah. to manipulate uh, yeah, yeah. them into yeah. sex. Yeah.
1: Yes. What well, we used
0: to refer to as compliments.
1: Yes. Well, she said compliments, really, you should never say them. She said, why is it so difficult for men to understand that a compliment is not a compliment for a woman? What you think is a compliment really isn't. It's just a comment on their appearance and it's an objectification. I mean, it's the most depressing worldview. It's, it's, I can't believe that, I don't really think these people actually live their lives in this way. Um, I, well, I really hope they. I don't. wouldn't
0: call it a life. Well, it
1: would be a it would be a joyless existence, which is why I don't believe that that's what's happening. So, the, so when um, Sissy says you know, there is a war against women, if that's the case, how can we all sit in that room today with women sitting next to men in an uncontrolled fashion? How can I sit next to a man on the panel if they, if he's at war with me? It doesn't it doesn't make any sense, and it's it is disingenuous, and it's it is a real distortion of. Um, reality. I'm not quite sure Can I sure show why. you a map? Yeah.
0: So I'm going to show you now a picture, mm-hmm. a screenshot of Google Trends. Do you know what that is? Yes. It's, you know, you can uh, analyze stuff, right? Yeah. So this is a country-by-country country map for the Me Too campaign. Right.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: the country who has the most interest in Me Too, mm. well, it's given the value 100 and mm. everything else is below.
1: Yeah. Yes. Well, this is... that. that this I. Had a similar. Uh, Could you describe what you are seeing? Yes. Well, Sweden is at one hundred,
0: yes. and then the
1: Netherlands is below that, and then and what? Canada, Denmark.
0: Yes. So the Netherlands has thirty-eight.
1: 38. Well, I, it, that absolutely chimes with um, uh, some a study that I found, which was by the EU, which was a study of women and violence and their experience of violence across the whole of the EU, um, and the worst countries apparently are Sweden, Denmark, uh, Netherlands, and Luxembourg.
0: Uh, Sweden, Denmark, Norway, Netherlands and Luxembourg. And could you please explain to me, because you're you're smarter than I am and you're a real scientist and a researcher, Uh, could you explain to me how the most feminist countries in the world could have the highest level of misogyny? Uh,
1: Yes, because they've changed the definition of what uh sexual harassment is so the so this is why the eu study is so interesting so when i read it i was thinking oh my goodness you you always look at these things and look at these stats and think oh god you know i'm wrong i'm wrong it must be wrong because there's statistics here but then you look at the way in which the statistics are created and so the the this was a a very large study which found that apparently women in romania experienced less sexual harassment than women in in sweden Ludicrous, obviously.
0: It um, is. I've I been think. to Romania,
1: and you know, obviously, that might be my prejudice against Romania. But I suspect that um, there's something other, uh, something else going on here. But when you look at what the survey asked um, about and what they how they define sexual harassment, um, they says the question was, which was put to them face to face by a, a researcher. At times, you may have experienced people acting towards you in a way that you felt was unwanted and offensive. How often have you experienced any of the following? How often has this happened to you in the past 12 months? And there's 11 bullet points uh, of offensive behavior. They say six of them are the most serious. These are the most serious. Unwelcome touching, hugging, or kissing. Sexually suggestive comments or jokes that made you feel offended. Um... Sending, somebody sending or showing you sexually explicit pictures, photos or gifts that made you feel offended. Somebody indecently exposing themselves to you. Somebody made you watch or look at pornographic material against your wishes. Unwanted sexually explicit emails or SMS messages that offended you. Now, I cannot believe that the rate is only 55%. If this is the criteria, and that was the figure that was the highest point, which is for uh, Sweden, etc.
0: Well, I think that's actually good news because that means that almost half the population are normal enough not to actually answer to these stupid <laughs> <Yeah>. surveys.
1: <laughs> well, it, it, but it is—I mean, it is extraordinary. So I go through those so unwelcome touching, hugging, or kissing by people. Yes. So that could be my husband yes. on a night that I'm not up for it. That could be my children. It could be me too towards my children <laughs> when I give them a hug and a kiss and they really don't want it, um,
0: which happens. Yeah. Everyone who has a mother although has ne- experienced. Although
1: oh, well, no, now, although now we are being told that we mustn't ever force our hug and hugs and kisses on children. They, they must be taught about boundaries, and you should never make them kiss. I've the seen the articles in Swedish, so yes. I guess
0: there are the, over, sa- yeah. the same. Pres- yeah, yes, the same recipes never, prescribed for the English. Yes, audience, the child
1: yeah. really shouldn't offer their cheek to the grandmother unless they really want to. This is their facial cheek, not their butt cheek. Uh, in all, because that would be, that teaches them that they don't have control and they do that boundaries can be crossed and they must consent. Um, I, I'm always really interested in, it because of my interest in parenting, which is that baby massage classes, which are available to lots of parents in lots of areas um, provided for by the state, the first thing that's taught there is that you must ask your baby permission before you touch them. Um, And before you remove their clothing so that you can then touch them in massage.
0: This is insane. Where did you say
1: this was? This is in baby. This is just written into the kind of ethos of baby massage, which is it's partly about teaching. Is a teaching appropriate touch. I mean, the idea is that it's, it's actually about brain development and making relaxed babies and bonding between the mother and child. But as part of the code. And the teaching is this idea that you must teach appropriate boundaries and asking permission of somebody before you touch them is always, always, always really important.
0: Yes, but babies don't really...
1: Well, they can't respond, obviously, and we move them around all the time to put their coats on and their hats on (laughs) and put them into pushchairs. They're completely
0: dependent on us. Yes,
1: it's obviously ridiculous. Uh, But the second one I thought was interesting, given that there was a comedian on the panel, sexually suggestive comments or jokes that made you feel offended. This is by any person. This is not in a workplace. This is just anywhere. So if I go to a comedy club and one comedian says, there's five comedians and one of them says something um, that I don't like and it makes me feel offended, then I'm now part of the statistics. Um, I mean, I'm the most crude person that I know. Yes. I'm very vulgar and I enjoy that kind of humour. So actually probably it's me that's the perpetrator in most of those scenarios. But similarly, my teenage son likes to try to shock me by telling me outrageous jokes. Yes. and this is the kind of game we play, which is go on, shock me, tell me a joke about Hitler, <laughs> tell me a joke, you know, anything, anything. Yes. And uh, he, no, I understand, and that's the because point. because I'm a real
0: comedian. That's
1: the, that's the point. Um, and so, this we're we're reaching the point that this is just words. It's just words. Um, so we've gone from touching to words. Somebody sending you, showing you sexually explicit pictures, photos, or gifts that made you feel offended. I'm trying to think what that what kind dildo. Of, well, yeah, fine. I might not want that in my workplace. But I, I know somebody who works in architecture and um, it's not a particularly macho culture where she works. And she's done extremely well as a woman and really doesn't think there's been any barriers to her progress. Um, but at their Christmas party, they have to give each other presents. And one of her gifts a few years ago, I think, was an apron which had stockings and suspenders on it. Uh, which she then wore throughout the Christmas meal.
0: <laughs> mm, okay. <laughs> now,
1: uh, with on top of other clothes. Um, now that under this criteria, she has been harassed. Now she's the boss of these people. Well, she she only
0: she's, she's only been harassed if she feels.
1: She's if been. she feels offended. Okay. Yes. Okay. So she, but, if
0: she can take the joke and just go with it, yeah, then ah, but, mm, but, it's all fine. But
1: somebody else in the team showing you sexually explicit pictures, photos. So with somebody else who sees her wearing the apron. Can be offended. Yes, and they have been harassed. Um, somebody indecently exposing themselves to you. Well, fine. The, the guy in the bushes. You know, that's maybe that's uh, that's reasonable. Um, somebody made you watch or look at pornographic material against your wishes. Uh, okay, I'm trying to imagine that scenario, but okay, let's go with that one. But the one I think is interesting: unwanted, sexually explicit emails or SMS messages that offended you. This is from anywhere. So that includes me getting emails about Viagra, presumably, if I'm of a delicate disposition.
0: Yes, uh, and also can't handle the block function on your yeah. phone.
1: And it also, yeah, certainly everybody I know that's, that's using Tinder or any kind of dating app, this is, this is what tends to happen. You put yourself out there, and before you know it, you've got a cock shot yes. <laughs> coming into and your phone. and then you use
0: the block function. Yeah, so yes. what do
1: you then conclude from that? Is that? You'd have to say that it's just impossible to be a human being with other human beings, um, and these are the most serious Yes. According to this. So everybody, I, I, I'm really surprised it's only 55%. Uh, but I'm not surprised that when...
0: Uh, but do you, do you now, when you've seen the picture and you found that study, do you understand more about the reaction you got from the audience when you...
1: Oh, yeah. I was not surprised by the reaction. Uh, but but panelists more than the audience, actually, because I think the audience was, as time went on, the audience, some very, very interesting things came through. and.
0: Um, well, the leaders have a very strong interest of you not speaking out here.
1: Well it's um yeah I mean it's, it's an interesting one because apparently um when the debate was organized some people found it quite hard to think that there would be any negative reaction to me too that there could yes. be any criticism why would anybody object to this and I think I've I've had lots of conversations with people in the preceding weeks of, of I've sort of sought out conversations with people of different ages um and everybody agrees actually that it is a good thing if women don't have to stay silent because they don't have to feel embarrassed or ashamed that these things happen, it's not their shame. And I think that's, that's Fair. right. Okay, fine. Uh, but then, then they, most people have also said, but I think it's gone too far. And I'm really worried that knee touching, which is the kind of infamous example in the UK of an MP who has alleged to have touched a journalist on the knee, or maybe not. She said it could have been the tablecloth of the table. Um, <clears throat> and he was then, uh, you know, pilloried and exposed. <laughs> Uh, but he's denied it. But it's his her word against his. Um, everybody also agrees that that would, is a ridiculous situation to be in, to, to have you know any outrage about. Um, and I think that what's what's interesting as well about Sweden is that one of the one of the people accused is a woman.
0: Yes. Yeah. But um, that hasn't come out here yet.
1: Uh, but she's not but, been named. But it is that the fact that people she, know that she is a woman. People, don't they? Well,
0: some people know that she is okay. a woman if they have, you know, uh, well, I on, read online it. skills. Well, I
1: read, no, I read about it on the internet that really? a, that one of the accusations is against. A yes, woman. well,
0: patriarchy can take any shape or form.
1: Well, it's yes, but that's uh, this is what's interesting is who gets scooped up because it is just sexual puritanism, isn't it? Yes. So on the the somebody raised the question from the audience about what I thought about the dodgy dossier, which was this spreadsheet that was being passed amongst parliamentary researchers, which exposed supposedly you know, aberrant um, sexual behaviour by members of parliament. And people, some people on the list were women. One of them was a woman who's very high up in the Conservative Party who was having a relationship. She was single. She was having a relationship with another single member of parliament. And this was on the list. Yes, very um, well, really inappropriate. Gay men. Yes. You know, and uh, when well, we look at Kevin Spacey and, you know, you can see the kind of... Uh, suddenly there's no resistance to this kind of Well, in, Sweden,
0: in Sweden, it's a, we have a recipe for disaster because this has been a social democratic country for a mm. very long time, mm. and it's ingrained in socialism, socialism that it's not your fault. There, mm. There's always socioeconomic factors or something else to blame, the structure, the system. So away with personal responsibility, and then when third-wave feminism comes in and says you're always a victim, then you have a recipe for true disaster, especially when the state decides... To teach this from kindergarten and upwards and make, make classes in gender science, not studies, science, mandatory in every university course, regardless of what you read. You have to have a gender perspective on mm-hmm. things. So what they have created here is a situation where we have a sect that encompasses maybe 25, 30 percent of the country, mostly mm-hmm. in the young generations, and how to deprogram them, I don't know.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think the only thing you can do is is really continue to create spaces for the other versions to come through, which is what I was trying to do today, was to give the alternative version. And because what they say is, well, we don't need to bother about that. We've already moved on. We've moved on and you're just left behind. You're the dinosaurs, which is what's been said about men and about these older women who say, look, we handled this at the time. It was okay." It wasn't okay, but I could deal with it. It wasn't destroying of my very being. None of them are saying it was okay for a guy to grab my uh, breasts when I'm trying to write a newspaper article. None of them said it's okay for a guy to keep pestering me for dates and then threaten my job when i don't accept none of them said it was okay to do that or that it was appropriate what they said was that i i dealt with it yes um and that what this what this undoes is any sense that a that the individual can deal with it but also that the individual can join together with other individuals and do something about it because i think that's the only solution really is you have to be able to talk to other men and women and assume that they will agree with you and they won't condone this guy and they people won't Nobody's going to say, oh, yeah, I think it was really great that that woman got raped and murdered. I mean, who's ever said that? I mean, apart from somebody on Twitter who's probably just trying to shock. Uh, but the this idea of a, a sort of pernicious, well, not even pernicious, absolutely ostentatious rape culture, which is the idea that's been put out put out there. And people just talk about now, students of mine will talk about rape culture, misogyny, patriarchy. They didn't used to talk in those terms. They would blame everything on the media. Yes, And now they blame patriarchy or misogyny or rape culture. And um, I don't think they... I don't think they've really thought about it enough to really hold it that dear. So I think it can be overturned relatively easily, actually, which is why it's worth challenging whenever you possibly can. But, you think um, so, yeah. even here in Sweden? Well, I don't know enough about Sweden, but I th- I, uh, certainly I think in the UK it's, yes, there are the zealots, and you won't change their minds, but you have to always assume there's an audience and that, by challenging the zealot, you then give license to other people to actually make their own challenges, even if it's just in their own heads. Yes, uh, and I think you have to continually question and to um, and to en- to engage, 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 and to, to not give up on that, uh, that, that. They somehow accept their view that we've already gone that got that far because we haven't. It's an open question, actually. I think it's um, I think in the UK there's there's a lot of discussion now about well, do we really want wolf whistling to be seen as a crime, which is what's happening in uh, one. Uh, English city.
0: Um, what, what do you mean, wolf whistling? Like whistling after women in the yeah. street? Okay, wolf. so that, that yeah. Is, yeah. they want to make that into a it crime. It has
1: been made into a, a Oh, oh a it hate, is a crime. A, but like not on a
0: national level. It's like no, some no. municipal...
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, All right. And whereas I've spoken to lots of women over the last uh, couple of weeks, you've said, I actually quite like it. <laughs> <laughs> and you speak to anyone my age nearly 50 and you and people sort of say oh it doesn't happen anymore and actually I go running uh, three times a week with a friend of mine and sometimes we get a, a beep on a horn and, and you know the, the ritual is you then raise your middle finger at the guy and that's it that's the yes. kind of ritual it's, yes. not a, it's not because we're horrified by it we just raise our middle finger and sort of go what and then we secretly go yeah that's great let not one up we've still got it, <laughs> still got it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, she's younger than me so I think it's probably her not me. but the um, it's that but the, the, the ritual is to raise your middle finger that's what you do you don't assume he's going to come and rape you you just think he's a jerk you know yeah. why would you do that but okay he did it so i do this and that's my response and then you run on <laughs> you don't kind of uh, go on me too on twitter and say this guy beeped his horn it's part of everyday sexism it's all men are terrible because what i didn't say was that the very very opening remarks in the debate was that men are creeps this is what, uh, I think it was, I can't remember if it was the comedian, I think it was the comedian, uh, Jonathan Rollins, whose opening remarks was, well, we all know men are creeps. Oh, no.
0: Oh, from time to time, but not all the time.
1: Well, no, not even, no.
0: That depa- depends on how you define creep. What does it mean, creep? a
1: creep? I mean, what does a creep mean?
0: Well, sometimes I have dirty thoughts. and Well, sometimes, so do I. Yes. I'm not a
1: creep. I'm just a human being, you know, with a range of thoughts in my head. So the idea that somehow that the the very that just having sexual thoughts is somehow is dirty i mean this is what's being said here it's dirty isn't yes. it and it must be driven out it, it's just you know intolerable this horrible human thing of sexuality is just a dreadful thing and it's alien to women and uh it should be alien to men or at least we need to somehow rigidly control it
0: i think so yeah So let's see, we've talked for 55 minutes. I want to thank you, Jan, for taking your time.
1: (laughs) Thank you very much.
0: And I hope I can uh, interview you again if the need arises.
1: Yeah, well, I'll I'll take that into consideration. I'll weigh it up. and (laughs) (laughs) I'll have to reassess your behavior first.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for listening to Jan McVarish on Deconstructive Criticism. Links to all of Jan McVarish's tips, articles and books can be found in the description below the episode on Patreon. A link to Patreon can be found on whatever app you're using. Now, sex is the driving force and the most dangerous drive in human nature. Almost everything we do is subconsciously done for procreation. Basically, we're all horny animals. It is not pretty. We want it to be pretty, which is why we invented romance to make it look pretty, but it's not. Before Freud, human sexuality was frowned upon. Both male and female had to hide their sexual urges, deny that they were sexual beings, which wasn't very healthy either and not much fun. Freud's theories helped, for lack of better words, to liberalize sex, from being shameful and base to something to be enjoyed and celebrated. Hooray! No longer was it the priests or your family that decided who you should have sex with, but you, you got to decide for yourself. Now, the only way this could work was that everyone saw themselves as an individual and took personal responsibility for their actions. Not that it really matters. Every advancement, every attempt at friendship or love in every culture, in every time is always a sort of negotiation. I like you. Do you like me? Can I give you something? Can I touch you there? Can I put this fist here? You know. Never more so than in the Western world from Freud and on, ever since the sexual liberation it is incumbent on every individual, regardless of gender or sexuality, to take responsibility for their own actions, and to listen, and to apologize if necessary. And if you really love someone, it will probably become necessary as you get to know each other better. The thing is, it is a huge grey area. Some things you thought you'd like, you won't. And some things you thought you'd hate, you might end up craving the most like molded cheese. But if you make mistakes, take it with the person you wronged, if it's not too serious. It is only children who always need grown-ups to intervene, and grown-ups who want the state to intervene in their sex lives, well, let's just say I will reserve my judgment. The hippie cry from 1968 for free sex was something else. That was not free sex. They wanted to free sex from responsibility, which was doomed to failure. As I told you, the human sex drive is a dangerous animal. It has to be well-trained or kept on a leash. What MeToo and the new definitions of what constitutes sexual harassment does is a direct attack on free sexuality, or like one of my female friends called it, life. It's an attack on life. Because that's what that grey area is. The things that aren't black or white, where disappointment and hurt and shame lies, but also excitement, creativity and novelty. I have been watching this movement since I first encountered it in my early 20s. It made me wary because of its clear totalitarian ideology. I have reported on it and studied it as part of my profession. And they all believe in this triangle, like most conspiracy theorists, where everything is connected. At the bottom of the triangle is inappropriate jokes, sexist slurs, unconscious but norm reinforcing behavior. And at the top is rape and murder. It's all part of the same structure, so if I laugh at a rape joke in Stockholm, then Cassandra gets raped in Syria by some sort of if a butterfly flutters its wings in China, there's a hurricane in Brazil-type logic. Just in this campaign, I've seen one of the movement's leaders say on national TV that it's important that we view an unwelcome text message or joke as the same as rape because it creates the same feeling in what she calls the victim, which is relativizing rape like hell. And she got to do it without the host asking a single critical question on state television funded by citizens. And like all extreme and or utopian movements, I'm not surprised that it has turned out like this. When we talk about extremists of other sorts, like white supremacists, we know that we need a defection program in place. And when we talk about racists or Islamists, we always say that what they aim to do with this attack or that attack is to erase the gray area, the area where people of different faiths and colors can coexist. But we never talk like that about radical feminists we should. It's equally true for them. They want to eliminate the gray area where the sexes can meet and coexist. Just as we talk about white supremacists or black supremacists, we should talk about female supremacists. Because that's what they are. Extremists. Or in this case, sextremists. After applying gender science on school children for nearly 30 years, all we have to show for it is the second highest grade gap between genders in the world. Finland beats us again, but apart from that, we're like number two, right? So, And we have 12% of boys are diagnosed with ADHD, 6% of the girls' suicide is at an all-time high. Gender science, a political ideology masquerading as science, telling women that they are all powerless, fragile, childlike, victims. And all men are rapists, at the same time that it states that there are no biological difference between the sexes at all. Under the auspice of gender science, academic freedom is suspended, and friends and government agencies have been given orders to report sexual harassment. What I mean by that is that the departments have to find people to report. Otherwise, they run the risk of being accused of not dealing with the problem. What is happening is creating an environment where you have to find proof of sexual harassment, otherwise you are part of the problem. If you can't find a witch, then you are the witch. My personal favorite recorded mass hysteria was the laughter epidemic of Tanya It happened in 1962 in what is today Tanzania. It broke out in the village of Kashasha. It broke out in the village of Kashasha in a girls' school. No comparison to what's going on in Sweden today, apart from that. It spreads from a few of the girls until everyone was affected and started laughing uncontrollably. The school had to close, but when the children were sent home, the laugh epidemic spread through the village and to villages nearby. The patients had laughing fits that could last from everything from two hours up to 16 days. The epidemic came and went for almost nine months before disappearing forever. Tanzania had just won its independence, and it was later attributed to stress. But that mass hysteria was more of a laughing matter. A closer comparison to what is going on in Sweden would be the Chinese Cultural Revolution where everyone was forced to gather in huge gymnasiums and write confessions of their anti-communist thoughts and feelings and report suspicions on their friends, family and co-workers. That too was done to build a socialist utopia. We just have to get rid of the bad people, and it will come, they hoped. Unfortunately, it didn't create a safe, loving space. Quite the contrary, it tore the social fabric apart. It fostered suspicion, paranoia, and hate. Which sounds a lot more like what Sweden is going through at the moment. There is a syndrome called Minshausen syndrome. You might have heard of a variation of it called Minshausen by proxy. That's where usually a woman hurts her children and or her pets to get sympathy for herself. Well, Minshausen is when you give yourself an affliction. You don't have it for real, you just do it to get attention. Now let's say your state ideology is basically built on victimhood. What type of environment do you think that would foster? That is why I suggest that Sweden at the moment is in the throes of a Minchhausen mass hysteria. Gad may have coined the term, but I'm calling it. For a long time, we Swedes have been ignoring real problems and focusing on the patriarchy, to the extent that we now see rapists everywhere. In the end, it not only empties the word rape and sexual harassment of meaning, it is also really shitty to people who have really been raped and really been sexually assaulted. And if you then add that it destroys the justice system, creates an informer society of paranoia and mistrust, and destroys innocent lives, some for small stuff like jokes, and some maybe because they had bothered the wrong person, who then decided to lie anonymously about them. I also heard another leading feminist claim that the Me Too phenomenon shouldn't be politicized, but it is obvious that this has political dimensions. The left has dominated the official narrative in Sweden for a long time. A lot of those narratives are now being confronted with reality. Power, according to Alinsky, is only interested in two things, keeping power or expanding its power. As long as it manages to do that, everything is fine, but as soon as the power shrinks, the different factions and individuals will start attacking each other. What will happen is usually the weakest link will start to attack the second weakest link and so on and so forth until it consumes itself entirely or a new equilibrium is found. That is why this predominantly is hitting the left so far. They are the ones who believes in gender science the most. They are also the ones who has forced it on everybody else and named names of politicians and leaders on the right that didn't live up to their standard of what a feminist man should be. Now their own are being hung out by themselves at first egged on by the right because everyone was happy about the hypocrisy finally coming to an end, but by now I guess we all just stand back in horrid fascination with this ideological purgatory. But even if, when all is said and done and the unions have gone through every business sector they have a presence in, it is still not good that a small percentage of the population who participate, fooled as they are by their leaders and or their ideology, is gathering sexual blackmail information on themselves and everybody else in the country. Just like the Scientologists make you confess your secrets to keep you in the sect, or East Germany not too long ago. It could also explain why 70% of female lawyers didn't sign the petition. It's not that they are for rape and sexual harassment, no sane person is. It's probably because they can read or because they've been around the block before, so to speak, and know that empty gestures of goodness never lead to anything good. And probably quite a few sign because it is a good cause. I mean, which sane person isn't against rape and sexual harassment, as I said? It's a sign of good intentions that you think will cost you nothing and maybe some will sign it and lie and some will have real Munchausen syndrome and some might have feel pressured to sign. It is performative goodness, virtue signaling, and you might think it will cost you nothing, but heaven is not right around the corner, just more blood. And all it achieves is forming an informer society, relativizing rape. That's what's going on here. They're conflating unwanted behavior with rape and sexual harassment, calling everybody a rapist until real rapists are just regular people. There are only two exceptions to freedom of speech in a civilized country. And I'm not claiming to live in one myself. Google Trends would prove me wrong. The first is when you use speech to incite violence. And calling someone a rapist is inciting violence. The other exception to freedom of speech is libel. Calling someone a rapist when they are not, or claiming that all men are party to rape just by being born in a male body, is libel. The Tanya laughter epidemic was later partly explained by the shared sense of losing control that becoming the sovereign nation of Tanzania meant. And maybe that can explain why white middle-class women from our elites, the most privileged group of people to ever have lived, are leading this charge right now. Sweden has, after all, had a real rape epidemic for a few years now, and women in the suburbs have been complaining of moral police roaming the streets to make sure they cover up and behave like proper Muslim women. At the same time, our leaders are calling out me too. Me too. They are losing control. And maybe this is a Münchhausen by proxy mass hysteria. But in that case, we, the populace, are the proxy. This will not work. The way to improve society and ourselves is to take on personal responsibility. That means speaking out when we see something wrong, not on a message board years later anonymously, but right then and there. And like I said in the interview with Jan, I can never sign off on a feminism that doesn't tell people that they are strong, independent and capable of taking personal responsibility for their actions. It might not be true or it might be very hard to accomplish but it's the only hope we have. Links to this and everything else we mentioned in the conversation can and always will be found in the description below this episode on Patreon. If you live in Sweden and want to swish me and support the constructive criticism just swish me at number 0768943737 0768943737. 0768943737, and if you want to donate some bitcoins, there will be a link under the episode on Patreon. Until next time, have a good time, unit.